How can I be responsible for the behaviour of others? This is Walking Your Talk, a personal development podcast about leadership, authenticity and courage. I'm Carolyn Taylor, and I've spent my life working with leaders in organisations on how to change their culture. But this is much more personal. If you want to be known as someone who walks your talk at work and beyond, then this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of my podcast, where I want to talk today about a concern that I'm hearing many leaders express to me when I speak to them, which is how can they be held accountable for the behaviour of all their people? given that some of them have got thousands of people reporting up to them, many of whom they've never met. But even the leader of a small team is often asking themselves, how can I be sure that my people are behaving in the way that I would want all the time? And I think that anxiety has been heightened since so many of us are working from home and therefore seeing our team members far less. And even as a mother especially when my kids were teenagers and becoming more independent, I worried a lot about how they might be behaving when they're out with their friends and beyond my control. So same pattern, I want to influence the behaviour of other people, and I don't really know quite how to do it. So it does seem to be a very valid concern, and one for which I do have some tips and suggestions that I want to cover today that you can have a go at putting into practice. I do remember very clearly that certainly 10 years ago, it was normal for leaders to completely deny that they could or should have responsibility for the behaviour of other employees who were deep, for instance, in their organisation. And I think that was before we all started to understand just how culture works and the leader's role in shaping the behaviour of others. Now, still, sometimes I'll hear people deny any responsibility, but much less than I used to. And I remember 10 years ago, maybe it was now, there was a case in the UK of a newspaper that was called News of the World. And journalists from that newspaper were getting hold of these really choice pieces of private information about people and then publishing the story, and no one knew where they were getting it from. And Prince William and Prince Harry were impacted really badly by it. And in the end, they, they sat with their security people and they worked out what must have been happening. Because, for example, you know, Harry would have an appointment to see his doctor about some ailment. And the next day it was in the papers. And they finally figured out that it must have been through their voicemail that somehow somebody was breaking into through the passwords and hearing recorded voice messages and through that working out what they were doing in the next few days. Then it kind of got worse and, and there was a very sad case of a murdered teenager where the police found activity on her mobile phone and there was a hope for a day or so that maybe she was still alive. And then what they filmed out was it was the same thing, that someone was hacking into the mobile phone and downloading and listening to the messages. So anyway, in the end, it it transcribed that it was news of the world and Rupert Murdoch and his son, James Murdoch, appeared in front of the parliament in the UK and it was televised. 
And I remember clearly Rupert Murdoch saying, how could we have known? And these people, this one you know, group of journalists way down deep in the organization, how could we have known? And they denied any responsibility for it. And anyway, in the end, News of the World actually closed down as a result of the scandal. But this month, I saw another example where I think I saw progress had been made. There was stuff in the paper just recently from Rio Tinto, the mining company, where they had laid explosives and blown up a 43,000-year-old sacred Aboriginal cave site called Junkan Caves in order to access some more iron ore. And the Rio Tinto CEO, Jean-Sebastien Jacques, is speaking at an inquiry, and he admitted that Rio themselves had actually prepared a feasibility report and identified four possible sites for their next source of iron ore, a next area that they wanted to drill, and that the other three sites would have left these caves free. But the, the one that was chosen was chosen because it gave them access to another 8 million tons more of iron ore, which I think was worth, I don't know, 100 plus million to them. And he admitted that no one on the executive team had read the report and that the decision that destroyed these 43,000-year-old site for the benefit of 8,000 tons of iron ore had been made further down in the organization and not ever really been scrutinized at the top level. So he took responsibility, which was great to see. Considerable reputational damage, of course, a huge social license damage for how Rio is going to be treated in the future by the Aboriginal communities to operate, to the license they really have to give for them to operate in these remote sites, all very badly damaged. But I did see some movement between those two incidences, between the News of the World one and this recent one with Rio. And the movement that I saw was the recognition of the chief executive of saying, I am responsible. We got this wrong. We were responsible for the decisions and the behaviors that was made by these people, and we didn't do the right thing. So I am seeing leaders take more responsibility now. And of course, accompanying that, I'm seeing everyone from board members right through to an individual team leader going, but what can we do? How? How can we be responsible? And of course, if we, we understand culture and how it works, the reason that a leader is responsible is because a leader is creating the environment, the standards within which everybody is operating. So the ultimate goal here, your absolute insurance policy, if you like, is to have strongly shared values and to have them held so strongly in your organization that any employee holds them in the same way as you do as the leader and that therefore anyone faced with the same choice, the same decision, would in fact make the right choice. And that anyone also knows that if they do flaunt those values, that they will get into trouble. And then finally, that anyone who raises their hand and says, I'm worried, I'm worried that what we're about to do is not in line with our values, that that person will be rewarded and praised and listened to and thanked and not in any way penalized or ostracized by their peers or by their boss. Now, that's a 
big ask, but that is ultimately the goal that we have to head for here. Because once we have that level of shared values, then the rest takes care of itself. People will often see controls as being the best way to shape the behaviour of others, to rule by fear and by penalties. But shared values are so much more effective if you can achieve it. And this is why. So when I drive a car, I don't speed. I don't speed anywhere. Not just where I think there might be a police car or a speed camera. Why might that be? Because I hold a strong belief that speed kills. Not just that it kills me or my passengers, but also that it kills other people that I may hit. Cyclists or pedestrians or children running across the road after a ball. And it took me years, I must confess, of seeing many very, very well put together ads that government was sponsoring on why speed kills until I really got it. But I have it now. So safe driving for me is a value that I hold. And so now that I have that, I don't need punishment or fines or, you know, the threat of losing my license or speed cameras. I don't need to be controlled to not speed. I don't speed because I believe it's the right thing to do. And that's what shared values are. Shared values are a set of profound beliefs that a group of people have about what is the right thing to do, that they hold strongly enough that they will follow them without needing to be controlled. So if you can just imagine for a moment that the employees at Rio, for example, had had that strongly held set of values, that they all believe that destroying an Aboriginal site was not the right thing to do. That would have made a huge difference. But it also needs a second factor. It needs an environment where speaking up on those matters is okay. And in fact, it needed an environment where everyone actually knew that the executive team would always want to know if there was a difficult decision to be made. That, you know, should we drill this site and get an extra 8 million tonnes or should we drill that one and lose the 8 million tonnes but preserve the sacred site? Now, ideally, you would say everyone would be confident to make those decisions. But as a check and balance, what I've found is it's always worth having the ability to have those issues raised up the line to the very top if necessary, because there are moments where it is kind of borderline. In those moments, people want a second opinion. They want to feel free to say, look, you know, I'm not sure about this. What do you think? And to have that voice really heard. So what then are the immediate steps that you could take, whether it's within your family, within your team, within your organization, or with your clients that help you build a sense of confidence that you can shape and therefore take some responsibility for the behavior of others and get to that point where you feel confident that everyone would behave in the same way that you would hope they would. So I think there are four steps. The first one is What are the shared values? What are really the shared values that matter to us? And I think those have got to be very clearly defined and you want the whole community to share those. So it might be respect for the community. 
in this instance, or it could be safety, or it could be risk management, or it could be privacy in the case of the news of the world journalists, or it could be a customer well-being one, or simply a respect for others, no bullying. Just what are those values? So I think those have to be very clearly defined. And once they have been clearly defined, then I think you have to describe lots of examples of how this would actually play out in real life, and particularly where there is a potential dilemma. So a conflict between this value and another pool, like Murdoch getting the break on a story is the pull against what is ethical in terms of breaking into people's phones. Or for Rio, the extra 8 million tons. For my family, it might be the desire to fit in with the peers. There's always a pull that makes living to values tough. So describing those kind of examples are really is really important. And then communicate, communicate, communicate. So just over and over, every mechanism in workshops and newsletters, in briefings, in ordinary meetings, like here's an example. This is where this value plays out. This is what I think the right thing to do is here. So that people gradually get that shared experience of how it works. So that's the first step, communicate. And the fourth and last step is then setting up the mechanics for people to raise things if they do have doubts. So confidentially, perhaps through whistleblowing, but even just processes around always asking, does this meet our standards? On asking to be asked. So requesting that people ask that question, proactively seeking out areas of doubt. You know, Murdoch could easily have gone, just a minute, how come we always get the brakes on these stories? How come we're always first to market? What are we doing that the others are not doing? And if they'd asked that question, they would have found out. But they didn't ask us in a way they didn't quite want to know. Even if they didn't know, it suited them not to know. So you've got to set it up so it's safe to do that, to scout out the difficult, hard areas where people would have difficulty in making the decision because there is a strong pull the other way and then make it safe to raise it. So those are the four steps. Define them very clearly, expand what they mean, communicate like crazy, and then raise doubts in a way that is safe where people can do that. And what I've found is that you know, sharing values does take time. The first stage is, you know, just even communicating what the standards are over time. But over time, what happens is more and more people come round. They start sharing the values. They're doing it not just because it's the company value, but because it becomes their own as well. But on the journey to that, the responsibility is 100% on the leader to create that culture where those values really do matter. And when you achieve that, people will fall in line. It's been my experience. And those who don't stand out more and more clearly as not really belonging. So I don't want to pretend in any way that this is an easy journey, but it is doable and it does need to be done because you're never going to be able to control your way to certainty that everyone will make the right decision when faced with those dilemmas that I talked about before. It has to be done through shared values. So as always, I wish you well in your endeavours in this regard. And join me again next time for more stories of culture and how it gets led by everyone who is in that position. Thank you.